morning's passage is Habakkuk 1, 1 through 2, 1, which can be found on page 785 of the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look I, why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their, just, ju- their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather their captives like sand. At kings they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and he makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. This is God's word. Thanks. Keep your Bibles open to Habakkuk as we look at this uh, book together this morning, and let's pray and ask the Lord to meet us as we open his word. Lord, thank you that you are a God who speaks, and that when we gather uh, and open your word, we have confidence that you are speaking. We pray that you would give us ears to hear you. Lord, that is our prayer. And so would you reveal yourself to us this morning to strengthen our hearts, to encourage us, to convict us, to build us up, to point us to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is a strange time of year. On the one hand, it's obviously a very happy time. You know, it's a time of family gatherings and Bright lights and festive songs and dreaming of a white Christmas outside or 
chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Though I've never actually met anyone who's really roasted a chestnut over an open fire. I'm not sure if that's really a thing or if we just sing songs about it, but it's a season that's known for its kind of happiness and joy. But on the other hand, sometimes all of that happiness feels out of touch with reality. Not just because retailers have long commercialized this as their big money-making time of the year, and that has a way of zapping joy from life. But it feels out of touch because if we're honest, 2017 has been a rough year. This has been a rough year. Mass shootings, fake news, sexual assault scandals roiling through virtually every industry, political madness, refugee crises, neo-Nazis marching with tiki torches, devastating hurricanes, fires, natural disasters. And, And those are just the major headlines of 2017. Add to that our own personal struggles the hardships that each one of us face in different ways, relational conflicts, financial problems, losing loved ones this year, the heartache of everyday life in a fallen world, and it doesn't feel very merry. It can feel like we're nearing a breaking point, like the world is falling apart around us. And at times like this, it's helpful to remember that there is a difference between what Christmas has become and what Advent has always been. There's a difference between that. Christmas in its modern shape, commercialized glitz, doesn't leave any room for brokenness, frustration, or disappointment. There's no room for that. Can make our our holly jolly festivals feel like a hollow escape from reality. But Advent, as it's always been, not only leaves room for sadness and brokenness, it actually invites us to face it and embrace it. Because without facing it, we can't really comprehend the gravity of the joy and hope that Christ brings. And so as we rehearse the story of Christ's first coming, how God's people sat in darkness uh, waiting for the promised Savior who would answer their sorrow, as we rehearse that story through this Advent season, we're invited today to take an honest inventory of the brokenness and darkness in the world around us and even in the church which pushes us not only to look back to what Christ has already accomplished in His first coming, but also to look forward with longing and patient expectation in His second coming, when He will return to make all things new. And so Advent is a season of waiting and hoping. Waiting and hoping. A time of recognizing that we still live in a fallen world, of lamenting the wrongs that we see in that world and longing for them to be made right. A longing that fixes itself not on what we can do to fix the world, but on what God has done 
to fix the world and will do through his son Jesus. That's the focus. And to help us enter into that posture of lament and longing, both lament and longing, we're going to be spending the next three Sundays in the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet in ancient Judah, which was the southern of the two uh, kingdoms of Israel after they split under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And he probably served around the end of the 7th century uh, before Christ, which is a time when the people of Israel were literally on the brink of destruction. The northern kingdom had already been destroyed by Assyria, and the southern kingdom, Judah, was no longer living like God's covenant people. They were in serious threat of forfeiting their covenant. And and Habakkuk was given a vision, an oracle during that time. The book that records that oracle, uh, it's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So you notice it's one of those shorter books toward the end of the Old Testament. And it's divided into two main sections. If you look at the heading, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And that introduces chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, you have another heading, the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, and that introduces chapter 3. So there's two sections to the book. We're going to be looking at the the first section today and next week, and then the third on the following Sunday. And these first two chapters are introduced as an oracle, which is like a, a divine pronouncement from God to his prophet for God's people. So it's a message that comes from God to his prophet for God's people, which is interesting when you look at the actual shape of the book of Habakkuk itself, especially this first section. What we find is a dialogue between God and the prophet. The prophet usually speaks on behalf of God to the people, so calling them to faithfulness and so on and so forth. Here, Instead, as, as one author puts it, the prophet takes it upon himself to work in the other direction, calling God to account when his actions did not seem to correspond to those demanded by the covenant. Habakkuk is confused and frustrated and heartbroken over what he sees happening in the world around him. And instead of waiting for a word from God, he goes and knocks on God's door to find out what's going on. And that dialogue that we see between God and the prophet here is broken into four parts. Most of your Bibles are going to label each section probably with headings like Habakkuk's first complaint in 1, 2 through 4, and then the Lord's answer, 1, 5 through 11, then Habakkuk's second complaint, 1, 12 through 2, 1, and then the Lord's answer, in 2 uh, 2 verse 2 through 20. And so what we're going to do is look at that back and forth today and next Sunday. And we're going to look at the first three parts of it today. Habakkuk's first complaint, the Lord's first answer, Habakkuk's second complaint. And, And what we see here is a picture of a prophet who wrestles honestly with a world that's falling apart around him and a God who seems indifferent to that situation when injustice prevails and God doesn't seem to care. That's where he's living. And so we'll start with his first inquiry 
in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. So go ahead and find that in your Bibles. The other day, uh, our daughter Eva used uh, some of the money that she had saved to purchase a little radio control car. She'd seen this at the store a while back, and now she had her money, and it was time to spend the money, and she got the radio control card. So we got it home, and of course, had to find batteries, and that took a while. But when we finally got batteries in the thing, she drove that around the first day, and it worked great. The next day, she went to drive it around, and it would only go in reverse. It wouldn't go forward at all. And we messed with it and tried to fix it, and nothing. It, it's broken. It only drives in reverse now, and so she'll still drive it around and so on, but but it's broken. Now imagine taking that broken car back to the store and standing in line at customer service to return it or replace it, and no one ever comes out of the back to assist you. Imagine doing that for hours and hours, ringing the bell, getting the manager, and no one comes out to help you. You go back day after day, week after week, and nothing seems to happen. Now, multiply that problem from the functionality of a toy to the morality of an entire society. And that's basically what Habakkuk is dealing with. Society is broken. It only works in reverse. Instead of moving forward and growing in godliness, it's They're decaying day by day, and Habakkuk is in line, ringing the bell, calling on God to help, and he never comes out of the back. He gets no answer from the Lord. He doesn't seem to care. And so what does Habakkuk do with that? He could have gotten bitter. He could have uh, decided, I'm done with this. What does Habakkuk do? He cries out in what we call a lament. A lament. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? He cries out in an honest, gut-wrenching lament. Which is an expression of sorrow and, and frustration to God. And a plea for him to finally do something about it. Sometimes we call this a complaint here instead of a lament, and and that's true as far as it goes, though it's a special kind of complaint. At no point in this book does Habakkuk grumble against God like the Israelites did in the wilderness, nor does he doubt the goodness and justice of God. He's not asking the age-old problem of evil, how can a good God, uh, how can a God be good when so much evil's happening? He's not questioning God's goodness or his justice. In fact, he affirms God's goodness and justice throughout the book. That God is committed to doing what is right and making right what is wrong. And that's precisely why he has such a hard time making sense of what he sees. He knows God is good and just. And therefore, none of this makes sense. So he brings his lament to God. And he uses vivid language to describe what he sees. Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? 
Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Everywhere he looks, he sees injustice. He sees a broken society, a broken world, the world falling apart. And to make matters worse, God doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to be interested in doing anything about it. And by his doing nothing, he's the one, Habakkuk says, who's making me look at all of this mess. Why do you make me see iniquity? All the while, he kind of stares at it uninterested. Why do you idly look at wrong? Why doesn't this bug you? And so as verse 4 describes, the situation is that injustice is prevailing. Injustice is prevailing. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. It never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Should be the other way around, right? So justice goes forth perverted. It's a, it's a horrible picture. But it's even worse than we think. Because what Habakkuk is describing is not just the injustice he sees in a fallen world around him. It's the injustice he sees in the covenant people of God. That's what this first complaint is about. And there's several reasons for that. But note especially the first line of verse 4. The law is paralyzed. The Torah in Hebrew is slack. It's powerless. It's paralyzed. And that's a reference to God's covenant with his people Israel. The law that he gave them back at Mount Sinai, where he made them his special people and called them to live in a special way, to be holy as he is holy, or or as Micah summarizes, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's what they were called to do. But instead, their covenant with God is broken. It only works in reverse. Instead of justice, evil prevails. As we heard earlier in the Advent reading from Isaiah 59, it gives a similar picture of the situation among God's people. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. We haven't seen it for a while. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. That is the situation Habakkuk is lamenting. Injustice prevailing, not just in the world, but among the covenant people of God. And the sad reality is that the people of God today don't always act that different, right? None of us are immune from sin or selfishness or or the effects of that. And again, to be completely honest, 2017 has been a rough year for evangelicalism in America as well. I don't know if you have taken the pulse lately, but there's something seriously sick in evangelical culture in America, especially white evangelical culture. Uh, Just this week, a poll came out that, quote, white evangelicals are now more tolerant of immoral behavior by elected officials than the average American. Think about that. 
more tolerant of immoral behavior among elected officials than the average American. It's not supposed to work that way, right? There's something seriously wrong with that picture. And by sacrificing principles and convictions for the sake of political power, portions of the church have all but lost their credibility today. We're supposed to be shining the light of Christ into the world, right? His holiness, His love, His majesty, His mercy, the grace of Christ that alone can actually bring healing and wholeness to the wounds of this world. What Christ bought with His own blood. And instead we're being told to argue about the color of coffee cups at Starbucks or who's allowed to say Merry Christmas. That's what it's devolved into. There's something sick about that. That's not the gospel. And so, you know, whereas for Israel, the law was broken, for us, it often feels like the gospel's broken. Like it's not working the way it's supposed to. We, and, and not just in the public sphere, but in our own personal experiences as well. You know, relationships that should be healed by the gospel that continue to just stay in strife. It's not working. Or, or sins that I should have repented from a long time ago because of the gospel, and I'm still, they still feel like they have a grip. It feels like the gospel's broken. And, and as Habakkuk watches this scenario in his day among his people, it was deeply frustrating to him. Israel wasn't keeping up their end of the deal, the covenant they made with God. And as far as Habakkuk can tell, neither was God keeping up his end of the deal in terms of disciplining those who did evil and delivering the righteous, those who remained faithful to God and were being surrounded and oppressed by the wicked. And Habakkuk wants to know why God is permitting this. What's going on? How long are you going to hide in the back room and ignore me ringing the bell? How long will injustice prevail and your covenant be paralyzed? How long will you allow the wicked to succeed and delay your salvation of the righteous? Well, the Lord has an answer for Habakkuk, but it's not the one he expects. And we find his first answer in verses 5 through 11. You've heard the phrase, seeing is believing. I mean, you, you know, if, I, if I see it with my own eyes, I'll actually believe what you have to say. Well, in verses 5 through 11, seeing is unbelievable. God says to the people of Judah in verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Take a look, see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. You asked for justice among Judah, I'm going to give it by sending the most unjust, violent nation in the land to discipline you. God is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to go against his covenant people. Now, verse 6 in your Bibles, some of your Bibles will say Babylonians there. Some of them will say Chaldeans. It's the same people. 
and they have quite a reputation throughout Scripture. A reputation that precedes them here in this, in this response. So look again at verses 6 through 11 and, and hear God's answer to the injustice among Judah. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They have no other law to answer to but themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. They come from afar. They fly in like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for one reason, for violence. That's their drive. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. King comes out to try and defend them. It's funny. It's funny to them. They laugh at every fortress, for they just pile up earth, go right over the wall and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God whose own might, their own strength, that's their God. So Babylon's program is nothing less than global domination. That is what they are determined to do. They build themselves up through violence and exploitation. They write their own definitions of justice. Their own strength is their God. And with their rise... Jerusalem is going to fall. With their rise, Jerusalem will fall. The land will be devastated. The king will be dethroned. The temple destroyed and the people deported. It's as if God's answer in these short few verses are undoing everything he promised clear back in the covenant. It's just unwinding the whole thing. So how in the world... Are verses 5 through 11 an answer to the problem of injustice in verses 2 through 4? That's not just unbelievable. As one author puts it, the cure is worse than the disease. I mean, Habakkuk kind of had a right to complain about what was going on, and, and this is like going in for a flu shot and contracting some sort of deadly virus. Here's how another scholar frames the problem. It says, God's going to bring judgment on the wicked, but he will do it through an instrument even more wicked than the evil in Judah. Hmm. Those who are even more wicked will then prosper all the more. That kind of still feels like evil's winning, right? This doesn't seem to really address the problem. Another author asks, how can God use instruments of judgment use as instruments of judgment a people much more cruel and inhumane than those who are being punished. This, is, this seems like overkill. And how can he allow those who remain faithful to God among Judah to just be swept up with the wicked? That doesn't seem right. As Abraham asked clear back in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This just doesn't seem to compute. And so Habakkuk comes back now with a second inquiry, a second complaint. 
when injustice prevails and God seems to contribute. Verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. And he begins his, his second complaint or his reply to the Lord's answer uh, rather surprisingly here. You would expect him to kind of be upset again. And, and, and just to cry out in frustration. But that's not how he begins. Instead, he begins by acknowledging God's sovereignty and justice. He approaches this crisis not from a posture of doubt, but from a posture of faith. Verse 12, he says to the Lord, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So he begins by affirming God's holy and eternal character. He's confident that God knows what he's doing, that he's going to do what is just, that the righteous isn't going to be swept up with the wicked. We shall not die. He doesn't, he doesn't believe God's going to do that. He even acknowledges that God is the one who raises Babylon up in order to establish justice in Judah. Now, you have uh, ordained them as a judgment. The word, for, the word for judgment there is the same word translated as justice back in chapter 1, 2 through 4. The justice that was missing. He, he recognizes, he connects the dots that Babylon is coming to bring justice. But he still has a problem. How can this just and sovereign God be living up to his character when the one who's even more wicked is now going to prevail? If Israel's injustice was bad, surely Babylon is like a hundred times worse or something like that. And so there's like, there's an inconsistency between God's character and God's actions. I know this is true about you, God, that you are good and just and holy. But this does not look good and just and holy. And and so he discusses this with the Lord in verses 13 to 17. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The problem is not changed. Now instead of wicked among Judah swallowing up the righteous, the wicked nations are swallowing up Judah. Why, why do that? And then in verse 14, he goes a step further and actually implies that God himself is responsible for this greater injustice. It's as if God is disrupting the order of his own creation. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. God has turned his own creation upside down. In Genesis 1, humanity was supposed to rule over the fish of the sea and the creatures and so on and so forth. Now, they've become just like those fish, with no protection, no ruler, no one to guard them or guide them. And Babylon is grabbing their tackle box and their net, and they're going fishing. They're taking advantage of God's disruption of his created order in order to seize upon defenseless Judah. Verse 15. 
He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So the Babylonians here are basically the anti-fishers of men. They're the opposite of what Jesus called his disciples to be. They're fishing for men, not by making disciples, but by exploiting the weak, preying on them, treating them as as something to be uh, capitalized on, living in luxury at their expense, and then giving their false gods all the credit for it, worshiping their nets. It's a bleak picture. And so Habakkuk is left with one question in verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will Babylon's campaign of global domination ever be checked? Or or are they just going to keep loading up the nets, dumping them out, and going back out to fish some more until they've conquered everyone? How long, O Lord? How long? Will you let Babylon go on gathering up the nations? How long will evil prevail? Will they ever receive their just punishment for their crime? Will you ever live up to your righteous, holy, and just character? And if so, how long? Chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk takes his post to await the Lord's answer. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint or perhaps how I may reply when I'm reproved. The imagery here, which is almost uh, certainly figurative, is that of Habakkuk taking his post as a watchman in the threat of battle. He is eager to hear the messenger come with an answer. And he stands ready and attentive, and he waits. He waits for the Lord's reply. And he waits not out of bitterness or anger or cynicism, He waits with faith, which is amazing when you think about everything he's witnessing and what he's just heard. But he waits with faith. As one author notes, there's no abandoning his faith here in the face of perplexity. No shadow of suspicion that God has proved untrue. But there is only the firm confidence that God has yet more to speak and do. And the persistent, patient, waiting and watching for that divine speech and action. He waits with faith. And, and so with Habakkuk, we stand and wait. We take our stand this Advent to wait and see how God will answer the darkness and brokenness of this world. We wait by preparing to celebrate his main answer in sending Christ. And we wait for his final answer in the Lord's return. 
But while we wait, let us also take heart this morning that sometimes God fulfills His promises and answers prayers in completely unexpected ways. Habakkuk did not anticipate this when he asked for judgment, for justice. We don't always rightly anticipate the Lord's response. Sometimes we think we've got God figured out, right? We know how the world should work. We know what justice should look like. We know how God should fulfill His promises. And then He fulfills His promises. He does something completely unexpected and, and we're left reeling with how, how could that be His answer? Our world falls apart. The, the money we save for school gets spent on fixing a car or the, the person we thought we could trust turns out to be a selfish liar or the job we thought we had in the bag, all of a sudden, we're not qualified for it, or, or, or someone else gets it. It begins to unravel, and we think, how can, how can God be working through this? How can God be working through this? What in the world is He doing? How does that fit into His vision for the world? And we have to ask ourselves in that moment, are we going to give up? Are we going to check out? Just look for some self-indulgent escape. Are we going to give ourselves over to a bitter cynicism? Or are we going to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness even when His ways don't make any sense? We're all going to be faced with that question multiple times in our lives. Some of us are wrestling with it right now. How can this be how you're working out your program? Are we going to trust in God's justice and faithfulness even when evil seems to have the upper hand? Even when God's people don't seem to be acting like God's people? Are we going to bring our frustrations and our longings for the world to be made right, are we going to bring those to God in lament and trust Him to respond even if we don't understand His response? That's Advent. That's the posture of Advent. As one author reminds us, God is always at work. He is always involved, always pressing forward toward His kingdom. But the means by which he chooses to pursue that goal may be as astounding as the destruction of a nation or as incomprehensible as the blood dripping from the figure of a man on a cross. And you think about God answering his promises and our prayers in unexpected ways here in Habakkuk. And then you remember, this isn't the last time God did something unexpected in order to accomplish his plan. As Paul preached to the synagogue in Antioch in Acts 13, he said, Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. 
They did not recognize Jesus. The Savior came and they missed it. They didn't have a category for it. He was unexpected. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Habakkuk. Paul quotes it to show how even Jesus was unexpected in the way God brings his justice and answers the problems of this world. Who could believe that God could establish justice through an unjust nation conquering his people? Who could believe that God could deal with the darkness and sin of this world through a helpless baby born in a barn? Who could believe that God would establish justice through an evil world nailing that child, God's son, to a cross? Who could believe that through all the pain the trouble, the trial that surrounds us, that God is still somehow working out His purposes. His justice to make all things right. This world is broken. God's people are sometimes broken. Our lives are sometimes broken. But God has yet more to speak and to do. God has more to speak and to do. And so this Advent, let's bring our frustrations and longings to the Lord and trust Him to respond even if His ways don't make sense to us. Let's trust Him to answer through Christ, our King. Let's pray. Gracious Father, once again, we, we confess that we are a fallen people who live in a fallen world. We confess, Lord, even as your redeemed people, we don't always live as your redeemed ought. Lord, we are selfish and sinful. We do what ought not to be done, and we do not do what ought to be done. We need you. And Lord, we praise you that you've not left us in our brokenness, in our rebellion. You've not left this world in darkness, but that you have answered and you will answer again through your son, Jesus. We praise you as we cast our hearts toward his birth, his first advent. And we pray with hope and expectation when he returns to make all things new.
So, Lord, may we be a people of honesty when we look at the world and, and, and what doesn't make sense about it, but may we be, just as importantly, a people of hope. Hope not in what we can do for you, Lord, but hope in what you've already done for us and what you will do in the end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.